happiness has to come from the inside. Trying to impose your vision of things on others is just not right. You need to have freedom. And that translates into political liberty and it translates into virtues of tolerance. It's very difficult to have fun and be spontaneous and be relaxed if you're constantly trying to imagine what kind of role you're playing and how you come across in the minds of others. However much you try to impress others, it's ultimately up to them what they do with you. And so since you can't impress them anyway, you might as well stop doing it. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Livia Cohn is a fascinating human being with a remarkable zest for life. This interview proved to be most enjoyable and educational throughout and humbling in terms of what a person on her path can manifest. When not partaking in Scottish country dancing, of which she does with fervent regularity, Livia can be found traveling the world lecturing on Taoism, coordinating Taoist conferences, editing a premier Taoist journal, writing books and translating classics of Taoism, and managing a publishing company that focuses on Taoist and classical Chinese philosophy. Additionally, yearly she leads a multi-week group hiking expedition in Japan to explore the culture and visit sacred temples. Livia earned a PhD in 1980, lived in Japan for a decade, and served for nearly two decades as Professor of Religion and East Asian Studies at Boston University. She has authored more than 30 books and countless articles and has helped spread Taoist philosophy around the world. We talk about all these things in this episode and spend a fair bit of time exploring specific aspects of the Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi, classic Taoist texts. Livia is a wellspring of knowledge and wisdom and such a lovely individual that this conversation has left me wanting to spend more time in her presence. Her energy alone is uplifting and soothing, and that is just a thread of what she has to offer to humanity. Settle into this timely interview and see what inspiration she weaves for you. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Livia Cohn. Livia, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. It's an honor to have you here. You are a Taoist scholar of incredible renown. You've authored countless books. You founded a printing press, a a book publisher, and so many more things. And I'm sure we're going to jump into all of those. But before we do, can you please tell me about Scottish country dancing? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. I will actually, I have a class I teach today at, um, in another two hours. Um, Scottish country dancing is um, like contra dancing. It's so, so you line up with, you know, men on one side, women on the other side, or whoever wants to take those roles. And then you sort of advance towards each other and go back, but you go back to back. Or then with another couple, you take your right hand and you go around in a circle, or you do like figures of eight around each other. And you do the whole thing to... Uh, 
very vibrating, lively and energetic music. And it's really, really, you need to use your brain because you have to remember those patterns and you need to use your ears. You have to really do everything in line with the music. And it's really hard. It's heavy on your legs because you're using like ballet slippers and it's influenced by French court dancing. So we're using ballet positions and you're on your toes and you have like first position, second position, all those ballet things. And you also make eye contact and you have strong arms. And so it's, it's an, very involved. You cannot think about anything else. And it's just phenomenal. I just love it. Wow. How did you get interested <laughs> in that? Um, I was interested in, in folk dancing. I actually, I started with Israeli dancing, which is also lovely, but you do Israeli dancing is more like the Greek, like in Zorba, the Greek new, uh, movie, and um, you're in a circle and you do like grapevines and you go forward and back and things like this. And I wanted to do Israeli dancing and I couldn't find a class that was um, at a time that wouldn't interfere with my bedtime. They tended to be really late in the <laughs> evening. <laughs> so I was looking for a, a dance class that would be at a more reasonable hour and it so happened I was in Boston at the time they had one of the they have several like four or five different Scottish groups in Boston but this one class started at 7 30 in the evening I said that's a good time for me and I came home <laughs> by nine o'clock <laughs> and so I had no idea what it was and I walked in there and I just loved it <laughs> oh that's incredible and that was almost 30 years ago that really was many 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 years wow <laughs> now, you were in Boston for quite a number of decades, weren't you? Correct, yes. I, I was hired to be professor at Boston University, and that was in 1988, and I was there for almost 20 years, yes. Okay. And when you were there, were you teaching... I think you were a professor of religion. Is that correct? That's correct. I was okay. in the religion department um, and they also did have an East Asian studies program. So I was also working with the people in the East Asian studies program, which was not a department as such, but a program that put to pull together people from like languages and sociology and religion and philosophy and different kinds of fields. So I was also involved in the East Asian studies um, program, but mostly it was religion and it's a comparative religion kind of program. So our big course was the basic introduction to Eastern religion where we did India, Hinduism and Buddhism. And then we did China um, with the different religions of China. And then we also covered Japan. So it was like a big undergraduate course that I would teach regularly. Hmm. Sounds very interesting. How many languages do you speak? Um, well, I was born and raised in Germany, and I okay. do still speak German, um, and then, of course, English. And then my major was Chinese, and my PhD is in Chinese, and I've spent uh, several times, I spent months together in uh, both Taiwan and in mainland China, so I do have Chinese. And then the bulk of my, my research work was done in Japan, and I lived in Japan for a total of 10 years, um, so I also speak Japanese. And I do actually run hiking tours to Japan, so if anybody's interested, I, I go back every year. I couldn't this last year, and I'm hoping that this year in October we'll be able to go. And I take small groups, and we all go to Kyoto and then I just take them to all my favorite hikes in the mountains and I explain about the religion and we go to all these great restaurants. It's a lot of fun. 
Oh, that sounds um, like fun. So yeah, so those are four, and then I'm okay with, I don't really speak too much, but I understand just fine, like French or Spanish. Okay. Wow. Quite a few. <laughs> so the the Kyoto hike, your website says you have one coming up in a week, so I guess that's been postponed. No, that is definitely not happening. That's oh, not... I thank you for reminding me. Actually, I should take a note and make sure that I change that. Um, it's not happening. I was, I was, yeah. I did reschedule the one from um, October last year to March, and then that didn't. That obviously is not happening. The Japanese do not let in anybody. They don't even let in spectators for the Olympics. Really? Yes, they're going to okay. have the Olympics only with people who are already in Japan. They will not let in anybody into the country. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, that makes things a bit difficult. How yes. did this? How did this Kyoto hike come about? You've been doing it for many years, haven't you? Yes, I started, the first one was in 2004, um, and it came about after I returned to, to the U.S. in um, 1998, in the spring of 1998, and um, then I wanted to sort of go back to Japan and also share my enthusiasm for the Asian religions and my love for the hiking and the culture. And then I had some friends who said, oh, you know, if you do a hike, you know, if you take us to Kyoto, we'll come along. And I said, okay. And so with my husband, we went back to Japan in the spring of 2004 and did a lot of trial hikes. You know, I said, okay. And then there's one hike where you like, it's like three hours of solid up. You know, and once you get up there and you still have 250 steps to get to the actual temple and it's like, no, this is too much. I'm not going to do that one. <laughs> so we trial hiked and we went to a lot of like little hotels and checked out, you know, would they be available for so many people and what would be their conditions and can we feed them breakfast there? And so, so we found a place and we found like a, a hiking, a, a series of hikes that would be agreeable. And I created a program and then sent it to these friends of mine who said they would come and they sent it on to some others. And we had like 15 people. It was great. And why Kyoto? But that's where I lived. Um, okay. Kyoto is the old capital and it has tens and tens of thousands of temples. And even after living there for 10 years and running tours there for what is now more well, 17 years now, um, I still haven't seen all of them. I mean, there's mm. just so much and it's absolutely gorgeous because the layout of the city is that it's a, it's a, it's on a grid. It was an imitation of the ancient capital of China that they laid it out in this grid, but it's surrounded on three sides by mountains. So it goes very little bit of uphill because it has two rivers that join together. Um, and the whole thing is just gorgeous. It's, it's the, 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 the scenery is gorgeous and you can just stay and was within a, 20 minute bus ride or a little train ride you can be in the woods and you can hike up and there are all these different religious um, organizations and types of temples and schools and sects they all have their their places there so you can really study and you have the whole history i also do like there's the imperial palace i take people there so we do a good chunk of history and then we also go after kyoto we usually go to the um, old capital of nara which was before kyoto in the, around the year 700 and that's a smaller town and there's um, there's still a lot to see, but it's not, you know, just two or three days is enough. And there's a nice hike down, which used to be the, the uh, major highway for the samurai in the Heian period in the 800s. And we walk along this ancient highway, which is so amazing. Um, and then from there, we go a little bit further south to a place called Mount Koya, which is um, up at 900 meters, about 3000 feet. 
considerably colder. This one time I did the hike during cherry blossom season and we had the most gorgeous cherry blossoms in Kyoto and we got up to the mountain and it was snowing. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> but what's unique about Mount Koya is that it's again, it's, it's like, it's very high up. You take like um, several trains and then a cable car and then another bus to get there. And it's a small little village really. Um, but it consists only of Buddhist temples. And most of these Buddhist temples are hotels. So you're staying in an ancient, you know, thousand year old Buddhist temple and you get, you know, the Buddhist food and you get to go to their services and you interact with their people. I mean, it's just phenomenal. Oh, I hope it works out for you this year. Yeah, I might, I might even join. This sounds incredible. Uh, really amazing opportunity. Yes. And the, the website is Livia Tourist Japan. I, I guess you've seen that. So yeah, I haven't. I'll, I'll put it. That. Yes, I'll put yeah. that in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. So you grew up in Germany. You live in the States currently, I believe. Is that right? Yes. Yes. You've lived in China, Japan. How did all of this come about? Like, take me way back into the formative years when you were growing up. When did you okay. first spark spark an interest in Asia and Asian studies? Yeah, um, it, it was very very prosaic, really. Um, I was um, in I was very good at languages, and I was good at learning. You know, I also did Latin at school, and I had Russian for a few years, and so I was good at all kinds of languages. And I was interested to really study how language shapes consciousness because as you're speaking so your minds are work differently and so i was wondering what kind of languages could i study and was the european languages um if you're growing up in germany the tendency tendency is to become a school teacher and i didn't really want to do that and so i consulted with my uncle who was a professor for political science and he suggested, well, if you don't want European languages, but you want languages, well, how about Chinese or Japanese or Sanskrit or Arabic? And I'm like, oh my God, you can study that? <laughs> and he said, yes. <laughs> so I was, I spent like maybe a year or so, you know, reading books as much as I could find in those days about these different cultures. And then I thought, you know, China is really fascinating. And I decided to study Chinese and then learned the language and then spent some time in Taiwan to learn the language some more. And then the university I was at, which is uh, called Göttingen, it's in the northern part of Germany, they had an exchange program with the University of California. So as my in my undergraduate years, um, in my junior year, I spent a year at Berkeley. And it was in Berkeley under the guidance of Professor Edward Schaefer that I first got into contact with Taoism. And I was just totally blown away and fascinated. And there was not very much, that was in the 70s. I was in Berkeley from seven, in the fall of 76 to the fall of 77. There was very little research done. And so it was this big wide open field was a lot of interesting materials and it's like hey you know study me <laughs> so. what is it or was it about Taoism that really drew you in um, it was fascinating because it's a religion 
um, but it's not as doctrinal as a Western religion. It has a lot of different aspects to it. And a lot of people are familiar with the more philosophical dimension of it, with this whole idea of flowing along and non-action and relaxing into the Tao and working with the energy movements and things. But there's also like a pantheon of gods, there's rituals, and then it also has the whole physical part to it, what we call the longevity practice. And I, when I got to Berkeley, and I had read about this before, but as soon as I got to Berkeley, I said, you know, I really need to learn Tai Chi. And so I started doing Tai Chi. And then later the Qigong start, um, which was already um, very popular in China, but hadn't quite come to the West yet. Once Qigong started to come to the West, I got into the Qigong parts of it. So, so it has, it's, it's, a, it's a variety of things that all come together to create like an embodied experience of Qi, which are divine, cosmic, universal energy, vital energy. And so it's, it's to me, it's, it still is very fascinating. And it, it has all these different expressions then in mythology and in philosophy and in ritual and in there's a whole ethical dimension to it. So there's so many different aspects to it. And, and it was really, nobody really understood it at all. At what point did you start translating the ancient text and writing books about it? Um, well, I did. Um, I was in Berkeley for a year and then I went back to Germany and started working on my dissertation. And my dissertation was on a, a Taoist saint and immortal from the 10th century, a very early Song Dynasty. And at that point, I started translating. So, in order to do the research on this, figure I had to go and translate different kinds. He has like hagiographies that are collected in the Taoist canon, the collection of sacred scriptures. Um, there's literary anecdotes about him. There's stories about how he interacted with emperors. There's some poetry that's associated with him. So I had to work with a number of different kinds of genres in the classical Chinese. And who is that, Livia? Chen Tuan. Oh, the, the person I studied is called Chen Tuan. He is uh, particularly famous for having created um, Qigong exercises that are match what the Chinese call the 24 solar periods. So in the Chinese system, you have your 12 months, but they also have an agricultural division in the calendar that's like a two weeks periods of about 15 days each called the 24 solar periods. And there's a set of exercises that you're supposed to do that strengthen your, your body matching the seasons because in the Chinese medicine, different energies are dominant at different times of the year and different organs in their body correspond to those energies. So you have to nurture those with the right diet and enough sleep and your rhythm and those are exercise. So he's famous for that. He's famous for some um, like ecstatic excursion type exercises where like a shamanic journey where you're traveling out into the other world. He is famous for um, having interacted with various emperors, and he's also famous as a, um, a face analysis person to do fortune telling on the basis of people's facial features. So those are things that are closely associated with him. And um, he was stylized as this major immortal figure, and I studied what was historically there and 
which of his different techniques or skills attracted that kind of attention that eventually he was stylized as an immortal. Hmm. What role, if any, does shamanism play within Taoism? Um, shamanism is like an underlying cultural stratum that gets integrated into Taoism in different ways. Um, Taoists do have this technique of soul travel, we call it ecstatic excursions, that we have clear examples for in the shamanic tradition. There's also herbal things like shamans work with herbs, they work with dance, with drumming, with sort of psychedelic kind of substances. And different Tao schools at different periods use certain aspects of that. So I would say it's, it's an underlying stratum that is in Chinese popular culture that different Taoists at different times pick up certain parts of. Okay. And sorry, what did you say the name was again of the... Chen, Chen Tuan. Chen Tuan. C-C-H-E-N and then T-U-A-N. Chen Tuan. And what ended up taking you to Japan? Well, I finished my PhD and then I wanted to do graduate work. And Dallas studies at that time, there were really only two major centers and one was Paris with uh, Professor Christopher Skipper, who just recently passed away, and Japan. And in Japan, we had Kyoto was one place and also um, several professors in Tokyo. And I was already in Europe and I thought Japan would be more fun. So I decided to go to Japan. <laughs> and you ended up staying for a decade? I ended up staying for six years and then I went back twice for two more years. Yeah. Wow. And what is it about the Japanese culture that continues to be um, magnetic for, for you? For me personally, it's the Japanese um, in the Heian period, which is from about the about 800 to 1000 AD, they imported large amounts of Chinese culture. And like I mentioned earlier, Kyoto is laid out on a grid imitating the ancient Chinese capital of Chang'an. So to me, a lot of Japanese life, the traditional lifestyle, not so much the high rises and the little cubicles and you know the rushing on the subway, but the traditional Japanese lifestyle to me still continues, gives a glimpse of ancient China. So there is like a dimension of traditional China that has been lost in China itself that in Japan is, is still preserved. And actually on our last um, Kyoto hike, we, we wanted to go to a flea market. And I mixed up the names of the temples. So we ended up in a temple where there was no flea market. But we ended up looking and, you know, visiting the temple and it turned out there was this ritual. And so it's like, wow. And this ritual is only held once every five years on like two days of the year. And we were there. It's like, <laughs> oh my God. So we spent quite a time to listen to this ritual. And I also, they gave you literature, which of course I could read. And so I studied the literature and it turns out it's a ritual that was developed by a Chinese emperor around the year 500. That's only done in Japan anymore. 
So it's like, wow. I mean, you're like transported into this completely different world. And it was entirely accident. I'm not probably the universe wanted me to be there, but it's sort of an accident that I got there. And that's sort of what happens in Japan. You, you, you come into these situations where ancient China is just vibrantly there. It's phenomenal. Did you develop an interest in any Japanese martial arts? Um, no. I did some when I when I grew up. Um, my my parents wanted me to be able to defend myself, so I did judo as a child for about four or five. Yeah, I was a teenager between maybe twelve and sixteen for about four or five years, and I did a bit of karate. And at some point, I did some aikido, which I liked. Um, but I got into meditation in Japan. So both Zen and, and more other forms of Buddhist meditation, it's a very good place. There are many places that will, you know, the traditional temples, they, they invite foreigners to come and you, you get that authentic feeling again that I like. So I did a fair amount of meditation and I kept on doing the Tai Chi and, and they had different forms of Qigong teachers were invited to Japan when I was there. So I did practice or learn from quite a few Chinese Qigong masters. Can you talk more about the meditation? Um, well, it's uh, there's Zen meditation and then there's other forms of Buddhist meditation. You sit cross-legged and you observe your respiration. You enter a state of concentration and you can assist the um, meditation the concentration by counting or by just saying in and out about the breath or you can just be totally kinesthetic and just feel the breath and you get into this concentration state and then after that you can just be there or you can observe the different sensations in the body and the different sounds and impressions around you so you learn two major skills which have been extremely useful over the years which is a very high level of concentration so which you know if you met my husband he would tell you that when i'm at my computer you know he cannot talk to me because i am so concentrated <laughs> and all i do is like wave my hands and he's like he tiptoes around and so, ah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, but that's because i just do one thing at a time and i just am 100 percent focused on what i do which is a training that I received during the meditation. And the other thing that it gives you is what some people have described as a buffer where things happen and you do have the ability to sort of take that step back, to sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, how does this feel in my body? How do I react to it? What is like this kind of emotion? How does this emotion or whatever it is manifest? And then you can act on it rather than being the, the Buddha talks about it in our Buddhist scriptures talk about it in terms of replacing blind reaction with a more concentrated, a more affirmative, positive way of acting. And, and so I found both those skills are very helpful in the long run. Plus you get, you calm down and it's relaxing. And do you still have a meditation practice today? I do to a certain degree, not as much. Um, I do um, I do some yoga, I do some qigong, I do some meditation, you know, depending on, you know, if it's nice out, I go and do qigong. So. Mm -hmm. And how does Zen, Zen Buddhism compare with Taoism? I know there is a lot of sharing of philosophies and overlap, but could you give us a bit of a summary of that? 
Yes. Um, the historically Zen Buddhism developed um, around the sixth century AD at a time when Buddhism had become established in China. And in India, as you may know, these people who leave the society, Hindus or Buddhists, they become beggars and they support themselves by running around with their begging bowl and receiving alms and things. And the Chinese would not allow that. So in China, if you wanted to be a Buddhist, you had to have a sponsor who would pay for you. As a result of which Buddhist temples were established in on the estates of very wealthy aristocrats or sponsored by the imperial government. And what would happen is that in return for giving the Buddhists the space and the food, they would make requirements. And they said, okay, you know, you have to chant every day so many hours for my ancestors. Or when I'm going on a journey, you have to have this ritual for blessings. And like this ritual I was talking about earlier um, that I saw in Japan that was um, developed in around the year 500 in China is a repentance ritual. And it's a way for cleansing a sponsor or also the monks from past sins so that if and when they die, they have a more speedy rebirth in a better position rather than going into some negative or bad rebirth. So these monks were essentially indentured servants of the aristocracy and they less and less meditated or did their own spiritual things. So Zen Buddhism is a reaction against that. But they said, hey, the Buddha really meditated and he pursued his own enlightenment. He didn't just chant for this Lord or that Lord. And so these guys left their monasteries after they had um, a lot of good education and training. They were very highly literate people, having also studied the Taoist scriptures and went on set on mountains and started to practice their own thing. And then they started to formulate all this in terms of their own philosophy and that philosophy is a very thorough mixture of Buddhist concepts and terminology with traditional Taoist ideas and ideas of non-action, of going with the flow, of being in the moment, um, of finding your own like inner truth, of attaining what they call jun, like a jun-ren is a, a true person, a true man, like Rinzai talks about that and, and, and attaining a state in your meditation of no mind, which is a big Zen concept. All of those come straight out of Taoism. So a lot of their thinking is really Taoist and Chinese, but they also use a heavy dose of like Avatamsaka thinking of traditional Buddhist um, philosophy in there in their interpretation. And then of course their practice is very much master disciple oriented, which is similar to what Taoists were doing who were also hermits living on mountains. And, and then there's interaction, which is still going on to the present day. There's a lot of interaction between these groups. Now, did you ever translate any of the ancient Japanese texts or was it mostly no, the Chinese that you focused it's on? Chinese. It's it's I did I did take classes, I did, um, while I was still in Germany and before moving to Kyoto, I spent a whole year 
doing intensive Japanese and that was modern Japanese. So I was able to, once I got there, I could, it took a while to really get fluent, but I could function, which was good. Um, and then while in Japan, I took, um, I, I attended seminars where we would read classical Chinese texts, but in Japanese pronunciation and the Japanese word order is completely different. So if you try and read a Chinese text in Japanese, you have to turn everything around and it's quite complicated, but I was able to do that. And then there's another level of Japanese, which is called Bungo, which is the more vernacular language of the ancient period. So there's a, a written language, then there's an old vernacular, like old English, old spoken English. So it would be the equivalent would be Latin, old English and modern English. So you have the literary version, which is classical Chinese read through Japanese eyes. And then there's an old form of Japanese, which I also learned for a while, but it's, it's a whole different it's not just the language, you need the research, you need to have all the tools, the different dictionaries. And, and at some point I was sort of tempted to go into that direction, but there's, there's enough in China. <laughs> <laughs> How many books have you now written? Um, I think it's somewhere, um, there, there's, we, dis we distinguish between books that are written sole authored whole books and edited volumes. And I think it's something 35 or so books that I've actually written myself. And then another 20 or 30, it's, it's over 60 total that I've wow. edited. <laughs> Incredible. And is that where, or the reason why you started Three Pines Press? Um, yes. Well, Three Pines Press started, um, I have a graduate student who is now a professor um, at uh, Duke University and uh, the Duke University branch in Shanghai. It's called Duke Kunshan University. And his name is James Miller. And he was very into computer things in those days. He graduated in 2000. And he, he came to my office and said, I've taken the liberty of starting a website called Dao Studies. And I think it's defunct now, DaoStudies.org. Because he's in China and it's difficult. With the Great Firewall of China, it's difficult to run Western websites out of China. Um, and then we said, and I said, fine. He said, you know, and you have to be the figurehead because nobody knows me. And, you know, you're the professor. I said, okay, fine. And then we thought that we should create something that would, you know, be like a manifestation of this new growing Taoist studies community. And we thought of starting a journal, which in those days we didn't really want to do. Although now I also am the editor of the Journal of Dallas Studies, but that wasn't until like 10 years later that that happened. And so we said, okay, well, why don't we start like um, a publication series, Dallas Studies, you know? And then I said, oh, good, very good idea. And I will write a history. And then Harold Ross, who was at Brown University said, oh yes, I'll write something about philosophy. And then this French colleague of mine had, had written a book about women, uh, Catherine Despeux. She had written a book on women. And I said, oh, I'll translate that and we can have a book called Women in Taoism. And then another graduate student said he was going to do a catalog of Tao scriptures. And so we had like this program, you know, four or five books of committed people. And then we took this whole idea to publishers. And 
the first thing they said, oh yeah, that sounds very interesting. What a good idea. But why don't you start with another translation of the Tao Te Ching? And it's like, <laughs> no, this is not what this is about. There are 200 translations of the Tao Te Ching. We do not need a 201st one. <laughs> You know, although there's, there's every reason to, you know, use this text in many ways, but this is about, you know, opening the scholarly and the public mind to the fact that there's more to Taoism. And so then James, um, who, like I said, was very good with computers, said, you know what, we can do it ourselves. And so we did. You know, he helped out a lot in the beginning. He ran the website. And then I had a friend who was editor for the University of Michigan Press. And she taught me a lot of like how to typeset, how to, how to arrange the, you know, get the right format and get the headers and, and, you know, get the manuscripts in a way that they look like a book. And she taught me how to get um, ISBN numbers um, from Boker. I purchased a pile and then how to get the book registered with the Library of Congress. And I mean, all those details. And, and so, yeah, so I wrote a book called Taoism and Chinese Culture which is a history of Taoism, a, a chronological survey of the main schools and main developments. And we published it in 2001. And then, you know, in those days you had to print and now it's all print on demand. You know, somebody orders a book and I just go to my printer online called lulu.com. I just order the book and it gets mailed directly to them. But in those days we had to print a thousand copies. They were all stacked in our garage. <laughs> and have piles and piles of envelopes and stickers and an order would come and we would write it all out. <laughs> Take it to the post office. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, and then we had a distribution company for a while, but then the distribution was more expensive than what we were making, so we didn't do that. And, you know, you have all these. Yeah. And then, oh, then credit cards were really complicated in those days. You had to buy this whole big machine in order to run a credit card, and it was so difficult. And we said, we don't do that. But then James, I think, came up with PayPal. And he also found like, um, there used to be a lot of orders came in by fax in those days. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> we had a fax machine and then um, that, and then he found a way to do e-fax. So people would fax it, but it would show up in your computer, which is very okay. handy. So um, yeah, so he was very helpful for quite a few years and then he moved on. He's, he does some, a lot of his work is on ecology now. He writes books and goes to conferences about how the role of Taoism in, in ecology because Taoists hmm. of course like to flow with things so they have a good relationship to nature. Mm -hmm. Where did the name Three Pines come from? Oh, from the tree in our backyard. <laughs> I thought there was going to be a Taoist origin to it. <laughs> well, you know, pine trees are very Taoist, obviously, and I, I like the idea of pine. And there's a major Taoist saint um, whose name is Red Pine, um, but there is some um, red pine was not acceptable or accessible at the time because Bill Porter, who's written um, this very yes. good book, yeah, <laughs> on the Taoist hermits, he took on the name Red Pine and it was sort of taken already. <laughs> and so the, the tree in our backyard was this huge pine tree and it actually had, it, it had one stem and then it went into three 
a big, you know, parts of the stem. So it's like, oh, sweet pines, <laughs> good. Perfect. <laughs> I've actually connected with Bill Porter and we're going to do an interview in a couple months. Excellent. Yeah. So outside of Three Pines, as you mentioned, you're the executive editor of the Journal of Dallas Studies. Is that the preeminent journal in the West of Dallasism? Yes. There's one other one, which is it's called Dallasism of Religion, History, and Culture. And it's edited in Hong Kong by the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we started um, the Journal of Dallas Studies. The volume one came out in 2008. And this um, Taoism, Religion, History, Culture Journal from Hong Kong came out in 2009. So they both came out at about the same time. Um, there's, I'm on their board and they're on my board. So we do cooperate. Um, the same, many of the same authors publish in both journals. The big difference is that the, their journal also has an article in Chinese. So, so their title is both English and Chinese. And they do get um, a lot more China scholars from, from mainland China who publish over there. And it's, um, it's a little more hardcore academic. Um, our journal has three parts and the whole first part is major articles about usually five or six of them, about a hundred, the whole journal is about 250 pages every year, it comes out once a year. Um, and so does the other one it comes out once a year. And um, the first whole first part, the vast majority of it is academic articles um, that we do peer review and that are of high quality. And then, but then we have a part which I put in there, which is called the Forum on Contemporary Practice, because one of the things I've done was the Taoist Conference. I also run the International Taoist Conference. And one of my my big ventures in this field is to bring practitioners and scholars together. Because it used to be that practitioners would be very uh, leery of scholars and think, oh, you know, I can't understand what they're saying and they're hostile and they're, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I can't do this, you know. And, and the scholars would like, you know, sort of dismiss the practitioners as being, you know, sort of lightweight <laughs> and not really superstitious, not really know what they're talking about. And so we've had a number of conferences starting in 2001 where we have brought practitioners and scholars together. And there's been some amazing scenes. Like there was one conference, which I hosted um, right before we started that Journal of Dallas Studies in 2008, I think, seven or maybe seven. And um, it was on internal alchemy and we had scholars and practitioners. And here's this practitioner who's been reading these texts. And he says, you know, a text says they're doing this, this and this and how, what stupid nonsense is this? And this practitioner pipes up and says, yes, I've done this, it works. <laughs> the scholar's like, Really? Oh my God! Do you mean you've done this? Oh, we have to talk some more. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 in, I really am very much in favor of this dialogue, and um, I, I don't. I, I understand that practitioners don't have, you know, the language, and they don't have the same dimension of history and the same dimension of having all this knowledge but they have a lot to contribute. And, and what they do today is the reality of this religion. That's how it's evolving. And so it's important to, to have the dialogue. So we have usually five or six shorter pieces, maybe between 10 and 15 pages. Some have footnotes, 
Um, some are um, just, you know, personal things. Some are like poetry. We had a very nice lady who describes, um, her name is Dawn, like Morning Dawn, Lee, L-I. And she has um, a little article in the last journal, which just came out in uh, February, a few weeks ago. And she talks about her journey as a poet and how her unfolding as a Taoist and as a poet over different stages and, and documents it through her poetry. And it's just fascinating to me. I just love it. And so we, um, we bring, um, and, and then there's another article of somebody who stayed at the White Cloud Temple in Beijing, and he took all these interesting pictures about Taoists, and so he relates his impressions, and other people talk about how they climbed up this mountain and what their experience was in this Taoist monastery. So, so we do get, you know, the living tradition, which is so important. And is that conference happening this year? Um, yes, it's happening online. Um, okay. We were hoping to do it. We, it was scheduled for last year, and that didn't happen. And then we rescheduled, and it was it's on literature, and it was sponsored. We usually go different places, and this literature conference was sponsored by the University of Sofia in Bulgaria. And everybody's so disappointed because we really wanted to go to Bulgaria. Yes. It's a beautiful country and you don't get to go there normally. And, and it's an interesting culture. And, and Sofia, again, is another city that sits between all these mountains and you can go hiking and then there's the ocean. And it's like, so, well, we don't get to go. So we've decided to do it on Zoom and it's coming up in May. May 20th to 25th, it'll be six days of every day, a certain number of hours presentations. Okay. Now, a lot of people who are familiar with the concept of the Tao, I've heard of the Tao Te Ching, they've heard of Lao Tzu. I wonder if we can talk a bit about another great Taoist sage, Zhuang Tzu. Yes. Can you tell me a bit about him and... Yes his writings? Yes, Zhuangzi um, lived a, a few hundred years after the Tao Te Ching was first conceived. His traditional date of death is 290 BC. There's a book called The Zhuangzi, which has been translated a number of times into English. And it consists of 33 chapters some of which have been associated very directly with him, but some are also slightly different variations of, the, of different forms of Taoism that was um, popular at the time. So it's a compendium of different materials that was put together somewhere around the year 250. So it's, it's old, but not as old as the Tao Te Ching. It's not as homogeneous as the Tao Te Ching because we do have um, the philosophy of Zhuangzi is what I would describe as a more psychological approach to what the Tao Te Ching is talking about. The Tao Te Ching has a lot to do with um, the social dimension of things. You know, you should follow certain uh, forms of behavior. You know, you should act in the society in certain ways. You should, you know, connect to Tao in, within the social group. And it, it talks a lot about the sage who was like the sage ruler who 
it's, it's very much a thing addressed to, to, to rulers and, and those who would like to be rulers. And, and it did have a solid impact on Chinese politics at certain periods of Chinese history. The Zhuangzi is much more internal, it's more psychological. It talks about what kind of mindset do you need to develop, not so much as a ruler, but as an ordinary person to navigate through life. And so it, it has uh, some mental, some meditation exercises like, um, Jai, which means fasting the mind, where you, you know, get rid of a lot of sensory impressions and you go inward. Um, it talks about oblivion. It talks about, um, a lot of it is about perspective. Like the very first story is about the big bird and the little bird and this huge gigantic bird, you know, that has spans like thousands of miles, you know, flies from A to B and the little sparrow sort of looks and said, this thing is crazy. What's, what kind of bird is that? <laughs> and so Chuang sort of talks about how, you know, you're in your environment and that's whatever you can understand is right for you. So you need to find what is appropriate, what is good for you personally. Um, there's another bird story, which I very much like where this um, feudal Lord, he caught this rare bird and he puts the bird in a cage. And then because the bird's so rare, he has this huge party for the bird and they have all this major feast and he tries to give them all this great food and they have singing and dancing and champagne and celebrating. And the bird is like, really, what's going on here? And he dies. <laughs> <laughs> because this is not what you would do for a bird. This is what you do for a person. <laughs> so, so trying to impose, and that's a big deal in Zhuangzi, trying to impose, and, and which very much resonates with the Tao Te Ching, trying to impose your vision of things or your way of doing things on others is just not right. You, you need to have freedom. And that translates into political liberty and it translates into virtues of tolerance and into you know social openness and, and so so there's there's a lot of Zhuangzi that's very relevant and it's also yeah. a very charming text you know the, the Tao Te Ching is beautiful and it's written in poetry and and it has power but the Zhuangzi has a lot of charm and it's also considered the first fictional the first book of Chinese fiction in Chinese literature so many stories are very enjoyable and some part of them are very funny. So, and that's sort of Zhuangzi's take. But then there's some chapters which we call the primitivist chapters and they take the Tao Te Ching and they're very much into social stuff and they actually created utopian societies and they did away with all culture. They say, you don't want any culture. You just want to be like in your little village, in your little house and do everything yourself and just totally get rid of the world. And sort of, I call it the back to the stone age movement. Um, but that's another form of Taoism that is in the book, but that's not Zhuangzi himself. And then another one is the more what we call the hedonistic or, or more uh, personal satisfaction type where you say, you know, well, everything is part of Tao. So, you know, as long as I feel good, I'm part of the Tao, sort of the hippie version of Taoism. So there, there are all these different strands and tendencies which play out differently in the later religion that you already see in the, in the text. 
um, but the, the philosophy itself, Zhuangzi, and, and there's many things have, I've written a book which is published by Three Pines Press called Zhuangzi Text and Context that looks at a lot of the different topics in the Zhuangzi and also outlines how it developed over history. You wrote in Early Chinese Mysticism of Zhuangzi that the source of all discrimination, it is found, lies in the tendency to split one's identity into many different eyes by comparing oneself with others and by making deliberate choices. Yes, that's can very Zhuangzi. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, it's, a, it's what he's talking about is that you're constructing identity on the basis of outside things. So what defines me is how big my house is. How de what defines me is, you know, what kind of clothes I wear. What defines me is what kind of car I drive. And so, so you have these, these artificially, essentially outside, so pillars of identity that are constructed from outside sources. And then when that outside source falls away, you have no idea who you are, you stumble. And so happiness, and I do have a, a talk about perfect happiness in the Zhuangzi, uh, which is I think also on YouTube, which was given um, at Vassar College some years ago. And um, the um, happiness has to come from the inside. So, and again, it goes back to what I talked about earlier is you have to find what is right for you. So there's a certain number of clothes, a certain amount of clothing you need that's right for you. There's a certain size of house that is right for you. There's a certain social setting that's right for you. And just because somebody else has a bigger house or a different social setting or different kinds of clothes, you know, it doesn't mean you're less, you're not making these comparisons and you're not analyzing. You're really coming more from a gut, from an intuition of what is right, rather than trying to create this sort of image and then continuously running to live up to it. And these labels and identities that we align ourselves with, they ultimately are the demise of spontaneity. Exactly. And, and the heart's yes. intuition. That's exactly right. And, and you, you, it's, it's very difficult to be, to have fun and be spontaneous and be relaxed if you're constantly trying to, to imagine what kind of role you're playing and, and what, how you come across in the minds of others. And, and the thing is that, you know, there's really very little to do. And it's one of the things that also in, in Buddhist meditation is emphasized. You know, it's, it's you, you take this image or this picture of this person and one person says, oh, this is beautiful. And the next person says, wow, that's a boring. And the other person says, well, I don't like it at all. And it has nothing to do with the picture. It has everything to do with the individual people and what their experiences are and their memories and their particular personality structures. So however much you try to impress others, it's ultimately up to them <laughs> what they do with you. And so since you can't impress them anyway, you might as well stop doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> What have been some of the greatest lessons in your life that you've derived from the Tao? Um, well, in my own life, I've, I really like to work with energy and chi. So um, I like to work with 
Qi as a, on a psychological level was the help of meditation and, and Qigong and Tai Chi. Um, I really like feng shui and, and organizing space in a way that is conducive. Um, so for me, there's not one major lesson. It's just an ongoing process of learning to live, to, to think from a perspective of energy and to work with energetic flow in, in a number of different ways. And, and so like, you know, like, like you started with the Scottish country dancing and see if I wanted to try to come across as this big highfalutin, you know, Taoist scholar, it's like, oh, of course, I wouldn't even mention it, you know. But mm -hmm. it's you want to be a whole person, and and if that's what really energizes me, which it does, um, then that's what. And now I also play pickleball, though. Pickleball is great. <laughs> I highly recommend pickleball. <laughs> I remember that when I was a kid. So so yeah so um, it's 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 I've, and one of the things I try to do in my books is to give expression to this, and and I wish people would get more away from you know rigid categories and flow more with the energy and and feel more you know this is right for me and this is who i am and this is what i'm comfortable with without being offensive obviously and you know still observing the social niceties um but energy is so powerful have you ever found yourself in all your journeys and all your adventures in life in a situation that you didn't really want to be in but you were able to find guidance and a way through it based on your understanding of the Tao? Well, yeah, I mean, it happens so often. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to come up with an example right off the top of my head. Um, but yes, I mean, yes, okay, let's take last year. This is, an, I'm, I've been in a situation I don't want to be in for a year now. Like most of us have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I know what situation like, this is. Like, <laughs> like, like when this thing hit a, a year ago, um, I mean, I was set to be traveling. It was March, March, April, May, June, July for five months. I had five months of travel on it. You know, giving workshops in Europe, going to Scottish dance camps, doing, you know, hiking tours. Um, you know, visiting family and friends over in, in, in New England. I mean, all the stuff. And it was, and giving a workshop up in Massachusetts and it was all canceled. And so we stayed in the house for three months. We're in Florida at the time. And then it got too hot. And there's a certain point when it's just too hot to do anything in Florida. And so we, we survived by biking every morning and walking the beach every night. And, and we're still, you know, seeing friends. And I learned pickleball at that point. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing you could still do. And they closed the courts and we put a pickleball court in our backyard for a month. <laughs> and, and then it's like, okay, enough is enough. So we put the bicycles on the car and we started driving and we stayed some friends who were willing to host, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, we're too nervous. You can't come into our house. A lot of people would say, that's fine. Um, did some Airbnbs and, and did, um, you know, some other friends that had places where we could help out. And we drove zigzagged all around the country, all the way to Seattle from Florida and then back. 
and it was like fun and everywhere we went it's like okay let's oh this looks like a good bike trail i mean i looked them up on the phone i had a book too the best you know rail to trail um, rails to trails kind of bike trails and so we went to all these incredible places and had like amazing memories and had a total blast oh good for you talk about you know making lemonade spontaneity <laughs> there yes and <coughs> some of it was planned and you had to organize a little bit but a lot of it's like okay we're here now well where can we go next you know I am in awe of all that you are able to do. I feel like I'm talking to a 25-year-old. It's incredible <laughs> the the vigor that you have and the enthusiasm for yeah. Taoism and life and yeah. the contributions that you made. It's incredible. Thank you for all of those. Well, yeah, thank you for letting me share all this. You know, it's, I don't usually get to think about it in all these uh, <laughs> from all these different angles. Yeah. Well, I know you're on a time crunch here so we'll wrap up as much as i would love to continue this conversation can you give listeners some coordinates on where they maybe can find you and your work your website addresses or or whatnot yes obviously um there are three websites um that people can connect to me um one is a three pints press it's in one word and the word three is spelled out threepintspress.com um, I just this morning put my newest book on the website. It's called Taming Time. Ooh. And it's about how Taoists work with different modalities of time. Okay. And it's available just starting today. So if you go on the website, you can get the pre, pre-publication discount of 20%. And um, then the book will actually be out in another four weeks or so. And we'll ship it to you. Um, so threepintspress.com is a great resource. And then the Taoist Conference has its own website. It's called taoistconference.info. So it's one word and Taoism is a D. Okay. Taoistconference.info. And you'll find information on the upcoming conference in um, June. And we're right now soliciting papers and I'm getting abstracts like every day something trickles in and then we'll create a program and it's free of charge. And if people want to join it, they should just um, on there. There's a registration email, dowconf at Gmail. They just send in their their name and, and email and then we just send them the Zoom links as they become available. And then the third one is what we mentioned earlier, Olivia Tours Japan, again, in one word. And there are also Facebook pages for all of that. So you can look me up at Olivia Cohn on Facebook or Olivia Tours Japan, Three Ponds Press, um, so, and Dallas Conference. Those are also Facebook pages. Wonderful. Thank you. I will put all of those in the show notes. What an honor it has been for me to sit down and talk to you today. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy. Thank you so much. It was my great pleasure. And I hope that lots of people will listen to the show. And for all the work that you've done over the decades and bringing Taoism into the West and helping us to better understand it and practice it, I am eternally grateful. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, all the best. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Livia Cohn. For more information about Livia and her work, please visit liviatoursjapan.com, daoistconference.info, that's Taoist spelled with a D, 
and 3pinespress.com where you can pre-order her newest book, Taming Time. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned, multi-year programs including world's first study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, rather than seek happiness, create it.